Hello, everyone. I'll start that again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we host uh, an episode about an interesting and vital color of the city, and sometimes its history that's now focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in the city. We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in New York. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, actually in the past with one of the guests tonight. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling, the history of punk and opera in New York. And we also looked at our public libraries. We have three of them, by the way. New York has three public library systems, not one and not two. We visited the subway, the public art in the subway, some of our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, you can catch our show on podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight is one of those special shows where we don't cover a particular neighborhood. And this show is a little bit somber, but it's also full of hope. Um, New York, like much of the world and much of the United States, has been ravaged by the COVID pandemic. Many New Yorkers uh, have succumbed. Many have gotten ill. And it is thanks in no small part to the good works of important organizations and great people who serve people of the city that the city's response to COVID um, has been stellar, uh, mostly uh, from the nonprofit private sector. And we're going to focus on a couple of different aspects of it. We're going to look at how organizations in general have responded to the pandemic and also look at the history of organizations and how they've responded in the past. And then we're going to have a special interview with someone who represents um, a local community organization who has responded to providing services to the pandemic with flying colors. Uh, My first guest now I can say is a regular rediscovering New York. He's Robert Snyder, Dr. Robert Snyder, that is. He's the Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University in Newark. Rob is the author of Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights and the Promise of New York. And most recently, he co-authored All the Nations Under Heaven, Immigrants, Migrants, and the Making of New York, both of which, by the way, were subjects of uh, other shows that we have in our, in our library. Rob is a member of the New York Academy of History and in 2016 was a Fulbright lecturer in American Studies in South Korea. He was appointed to the position of Manhattan Borough Historian by our great borough president, Gail Brewer, and that was in 2019. Dr. Robert Snyder, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Are you originally from the city? I was born in the Bronx, but I grew up in the North Jersey suburbs, and my parents were both New Yorkers, and they always told stories about the city. They were very fond of the city, and I had a grandmother living in the Bronx in the 60s and 70s. So the the city was always a big presence in my life, even though I was a suburban kid. 
When did you first become interested in the study of history and then in the study of the history of this amazing city that we live in? I always had an interest in history from the time I was a child. It was just something that engrossed me. What came before? What happened before we got here? How did it shape the world that we lived in? That got sharpened during the mid to late 60s, during the Vietnam War, when I started to ask questions about why we were in this war and did we need to be in this war. What drew my attention to New York City, I think, was the crisis years in the early 1970s. I had almost all my family had lived in New York at one time or another, and I had a grandmother living in the hybrid section of the Bronx, and her life got really hard there. And I kept wondering what happened to the city in the 60s and 70s, what explained the, the rise in crime, what explained the difficulties that she went through. And that got me interested in the history of the city. And that was sharpened when I went to graduate school at New York University in the history department, where Tom Bender, Danny Walkowitz, and Ron Greeley were great professors who all taught me aspects of urban history. Well, being the, the Manhattan Borough historian is quite an honor. What, what was the process of the journey that, that led you to, uh, to the chair? The borough president heard me speak a couple times, once about crossing Broadway, once about John James Audubon and his role in Washington Heights. And she then buttonholed me through my wife and asked me if I wanted it. And I did, because I did want to do something after teaching at Rutgers that would be of service to New York City. And that's what I'm trying to do today. And it's hard to say, Nail, it, it's hard to say no to Gail Brewer when she asks you for something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I'm pleased to not that this is a political show, but uh, I hope she decides to uh, stay in public service by running for another office after uh, uh, our term limits uh, keep her from running for a third term as borough president. Um, That brings us to COVID, Rob. Um, It's not such a great subject to talk about as we're still going through it. Um, But I think there's a perspective that we can give it here that's different from um, both either looking back at historical event on a future episode of the show Um, You know, we're still in the thick of it, even though we can see the clearing in the distance, especially with the announcement today that the president expects that uh, nearly all Americans will be able to be vaccinated by the end of May, which is good news indeed. Um, Speaking of historical perspective, though, I do want to look back at the flu pandemic from a century ago, 1918 to 1919. It's mentioned a lot now, but it's not really discussed in the manner I wanted to, to, to speak about it with you. We hear about the pandemic. And we hear about an occasional, you know, about a super spreader event like what happened in that infamous parade in Philadelphia at the end of the First World War. But something we don't hear about all that much are comparisons. We hear about the number of deaths, but we don't hear a lot about the comparisons of how people and how New Yorkers responded to the flu pandemic then and how they're responding to how those organizations are responding to COVID now. As a city, what, and it's a loaded question, you know, what would you say are the similarities in how, in, in how organizations are dealing with the pandemic now? Well, what's similar and is striking to me is that a lot of the settlement houses and public health programs that date to the early 20th century, which were often established to deal with tuberculosis and then were applied to deal with the pandemic in 1918, some of those practices and institutions are still helping us today. Settlement houses like the Henry Street Settlement House, practices like social distancing, practices like masking. These were used in 1918, and they are now being applied effectively today. And I think New York City benefits a lot 
from a public health infrastructure that was laid more than a century ago that can still be applied today to help us in the pandemic. That's one of the sources of strengths in the city, and it's worth thinking very seriously. What are do is there a lot of historical record from people who at at, at settlement houses who served people in communities in those days? Did, did did they write down a lot? Do we do we know what they went through? Do we because you know there's no one left now who who worked then. I mean there are a few people who were alive then, but uh, certainly no one who uh, would remember those times from a from a service standpoint. Yes, the settlement house workers of 1918 were highly articulate. They were prolific writers. They knew that they were on the cutting edge of reform movements in their time. They believed passionately in their purpose. And they went out to serve the public, often basically just by comforting people in very difficult circumstances. There weren't antibiotics that they could administer to help people suffering in the flu pandemic. So instead, they comforted them. They did what they could to keep them nourished, to keep them in the best housing possible. And that helped people get through. There was a terrible loss of life. You don't want to make light of that. There were 30,000 people who died in New York City in the flu pandemic, but it would have been worse without the public health measures that we saw in the city. Communities of color have been hit especially hard in the, in the pandemic now. Um, I want to ask you about the impact um, that these organizations had um, on disadvantaged communities in a century ago, actually, specifically the impact that the pandemic had on disadvantaged communities was did they hit those communities harder than 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 communities that were not poor? They hit immigrants and people who are crowded, particularly in lower Manhattan, very, very hard. Crowding was one of the ways that the flu spread. It spread in tenements. It also spread on troop ships that were headed to the battlefields of Europe loaded with U.S. troops. And between crowded housing conditions and troop ships, that's how the pandemic spread in 1918. One of the things about 1918 that's fascinating is that children were encouraged to go to school. And one of the reasons for that was in school, they would be often in a healthier environment than they were at home. And teachers and health officials could minister to them in schools and help them in in many cases, reduce the risk that they faced. So there was a certain logic in 1918 to keeping the schools open. One thing we see in some of those historic pictures, some of the photographs, it seemed like everyone was wearing a mask. <laughs> um, did almost everybody wear a mask in public back in, back it in those days? In the where you were. In fact, in, in some cities, there were, again, you know, people complaining about masks, beefing about masks in in. Philadelphia, there was a huge parade connected with the war, which functioned as a super spreader event. There was a very uneven response to the flu pandemic in 1918. And I think that's for two reasons. One, the country was focused on fighting World War One. The Wilson administration was focused on fighting World War One. And there was not an alert um, and vigilant press covering the pandemic. There was a great deal of censorship during the fighting of World War One. So cities, states were left on their own, and they had to improvise their own responses to the pandemic. And that is one of the things that drove the level of deaths higher. It has a certain comparison that can be made to earlier phases in the pandemic in the U.S. when public information was very unreliable and uncertain, and people didn't quite know what to do and thus stumbled forward in a very difficult situation. Hmm. Did New York City have a Department of Health at, at that time? 
it had municipal departments that handled public health. It also had a very vibrant kind of public sector of settlement house workers, visiting nurses, reformers who eagerly took up the job of working to safeguard the health of people in New York City. And it laid the foundation for the public health system that we have today in New York. I want to ask a clinical question. Were there any drugs at all that could help treat symptoms of the flu pandemic 100 years ago? The problem with the flu pandemic 100 years ago is that people would get the flu. If the flu didn't get you, then you could get pneumonia, and that would get you, and they did not have antibiotics. My own grandfather was in the U.S. Army in 1918. He was slated to be shipped to Europe, and they left him in a base um, in the New York City metropolitan area because they assumed he would die of the flu. He didn't die of the flu. He survived, and he finished out the war years working as a transit worker in New York City. But the death toll among troops was particularly bad because they were packed into barracks, then they were marched to troop ships and packed into troop ships. And in both those situations, the disease spread really easily. Mm. And then, of course, it just, no one could be vaccinated because they didn't have vaccines. But I suppose it just went its course after 675,000 Americans died. It did. It, it ran a course. And what's so strange about it is that you had 675,000 Americans died. Globally, maybe 50 million people died. In New York City, some 30,000 people died. But there was very little, if any, public recognition of their deaths. There is not one monument in the state of New York that we can find to the dead of the pandemic of 1918. People died and then they suffered in private and then went on with their lives. And I think that is one of the things that distinguishes 1918 from today. Already, people are starting to commemorate the dead of the pandemic. And I think overall, I think that's a healthy thing. And we're going to talk about that uh, in the second part of our of our chat and in, in a couple of minutes. You know, one thing I, I do want to say about memorialization is uh, my father's sister uh, died of leukemia in the 40s. And he told me he went to visit uh, her grave with my grandmother and he went. It was a cemetery in Queens and he was just walking around. And all of a sudden there were all of these tombstones about people who died at the end of 1918 and early 1919. And he realized that it was it was it was from the pandemic. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about New Yorkers' response to COVID with Dr. Robert Snyder. Rob, Dr. Robert Snyder, sorry about that. He is the Manhattan Borough Historian. We'll be back in a moment. Great. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. 
We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York on our episode about New Yorkers' responses to COVID. My first guest is Dr. Robert Snyder. Rob is the Manhattan Borough historian and the author of some great books, including Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights, and The Promise of New York, and also All the Nations Under Heaven, Immigrants, Migrants, and the Making of New York. I'm proud to say that they're both in my library. Um, Rob, before we get to talking about documenting the pandemic, which I want to ask you about, um, uh, speaking about communities of color and settlement houses from 100 years ago, we don't really have settlement houses who are providing these many of these services as much as we used to. What are some of the organizations now that um, are providing services to, to local communities? Well, the, you know, the settlement houses are there. Their function in neighborhoods is often different from what it used to be, but they've been expanded on and really added to by organizations that date from the middle of the 20th century and the years of the urban crisis, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So, for example, the Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation is one that dates really to, I think, the 1970s, founded to help Washington Heights through all sorts of troubles in that time that's around serving people and helping in the pandemic. You get similar organizations out in Queens that were established by immigrants who came after 65. So they're playing an important role. There's a there's a dense web of social service organizations in New York City that I think give us a lot of help, but they need help in turn. They need funding. They need the medical supplies they need to serve people. They need food to feed people. The, the needs are extraordinary. And they also need to help people with the psychological problems that are that are bedeviling them in this pandemic. I mean, the crisis really hits folks on multiple levels. Mm. And thank goodness for the organizations. And our second guest on in a couple of minutes is going to be someone who's providing some of these very important services actually up north in Washington Heights. But I want to talk about about documenting the pandemic, Rob. Um, what is the COVID NYC documentary project? I mean, you can guess what it is, but 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 do you want to talk a little about it? 
Yes, it's a it's a network of historians, archivists, community activists, photographers who started meeting last April with a big question on our minds. How big is this pandemic? What can we do to most effectively record it so that future historians can understand it, write about it, research it, and maybe begin the work of trying to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. So we met virtually back in April of 2020. And over the summer... That was we, early on in the pandemic, like within early a month's on, time. Because we had a lot of questions. I didn't know anything about pandemics. I didn't know anything about biology. I barely knew about the flu. So I began by calling two historians that I know, Janet Golden, just retired from Rutgers, David Rosner, still teaching at Columbia, and said, can you t- sit down with a bunch of us and tell us about this kind of pandemic and the precedence that it might have in, in, in the 1918 flu. They were glad to do that. We read their work. And then we just did what historians always do, which is try to figure out comparisons that help us understand things. And I'll never forget that one, Josh Brown, retired from the city university, said, I think this is going to be big. I think it's going to be big on the scale of the Great Depression. And I think Josh was absolutely correct that the level of upheaval and suffering that we're seeing does compare to the Great Depression and demands a response on something like that scale. Is there an actual organization that that is organizing or sponsoring it, or is it more like a coalition? It's a coalition of people who work together. I work very closely with Peter Eigner. He's the director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the CUNY Graduate Center. Jessica Siegel, who is a professor emerita of journalism at Brooklyn College, has been helping out. And what we've been doing is collecting sheets of information from organizations all around the city, individuals, museums, community-based organizations that are all in their own ways documenting the pandemic. And we've put them together on a website. We've got more than 20 entries on the website now. And we hope that researchers will go there and draw on them. We hope that people who want to do projects of their own will go there to get good ideas from what other folks are doing and that we can all learn from each other and proceed more effectively as we try to make sense of this very difficult time. I want to stress that we're interested in the pandemic, but we're also interested in things that occur in the context of the pandemic. For example, we have an entry for a photographer, Erica Lanzner, an award-winning photographer who's taken thousands of photos of the Black Lives Matter movement around New York City this past summer and spring. That is surely part of what is one of the major reactions to the life of under the pandemic. And that's one of the things we want to understand in the pandemic's context. Is the archive going to be mostly digital or is there going to be a significant part of the more traditional parts of brick and mortar type of collection activities that uh, archives and even museums uh, uh, partake in? This is almost all digital. There are certainly some physical documents that people are donating to different collections around the city. But I think one of the things that is striking about this time is how much of the material that is being collected is born digital. For example, the Schomburg in Harlem is doing great work looking at websites, digital communications of all forms documenting the experiences of people of Harlem and throughout the African diaspora with this time. It's digital production that I think defines people's response to this, along with going into the streets like the demonstrations we've seen and 
isolating socially from others. So there's this very strange combination of being digitally connected, socially isolated, and seeing movements in the street outside your door that define this time. And I think it makes it very unusual and a little disorienting for a lot of people. Well, one thing I did notice about the project and reading about it is that it's it's looking to provide a single digital home. Um, has something like this ever been attempted on a, on a on a scale like this before? There was a great archive put together after September 11th, the September 11th Digital Archive, and that collected oral histories, graphic designs, um, artifacts, personal testimony from all around the world, front pages of newspapers from all around the world. And that was connected by people at the City University of New York, who then donated it to the Library of Congress. And it's a great resource there. We would hope that someday somebody picks up on the different digital archives that we're identifying all around New York City and gives them one big home. One of the goals of the project that I read is to avoid duplication in the project. Um, it's something that I wanted to ask you. I know I'm going to sound like a little bit of a Luddite here. Uh, how can you do that in a digital collection? How do you avoid, you know, uh, how do you avoid duplication? What's that process like to make sure that stuff isn't duplicated? What we hope is that people become sufficiently aware of what other folks are doing, that they don't feel compelled to reinvent the wheel, but then go ahead and work on projects that are of their interest and of their liking that make distinct contributions. For example, the Columbia University Oral History Office is doing a big oral history project. That doesn't mean that nobody should do an oral history project. It just means carve out a piece of that you'll study in oral history that might be different from what they're doing. Similarly, we've got great photographs from Erica Lanzler of the Black Lives Matter Matter movement, but I can also think of great photos that have been pulled together by the Bloomingdale Neighborhood History Group about life specifically on the Upper West Side and the way it looks in these times. I think that's a great way to be specific. Asian Pacific American Studies Institute at NYU is looking to interview Asian Pacific American people about their experiences in the pandemic. That way we get the broadest coverage possible that's very specific to the many different experiences around the city. I, this may be a little early to ask, but but has any institution expressed an interest in hosting an actual physical exhibition of New Yorkers' responses to COVID? The Museum of the City of New York has done really good work on this already. They've actually collected a lot of good material, and they've had an exhibit of their own. New York Historical has done an exhibit as well. Um, There's a great project called COVID POC that records people of color's responses to the pandemic. They've done work that's been up online. So things are brewing. And like 9-11, where there was a flowering of cultural reactions to the disaster at the World Trade Center, the making of monuments, the making of memorials to people all around the city spontaneously and from the bottom up. I think we see that again in the time of the pandemic. And I think it's a testament to the creativity and ingenuity of New Yorkers that happens. Why I want to go back to the to the flu pandemic 100 years ago and the fact that there was very little memorialization of people who died. Why do you think there was I mean, we have this memorialization now. Why do you think there was very little or when next to none 100 years ago? It's a very good question. And it's one that I mull over a lot. 
I think part of it was it got very little recognition from the heights of government. People died, but the Wilson administration and frankly, other officials wanted to focus on winning the first world war. So there was little attention given to the lives of those who suffered and died in big public commemorations. There are plenty of monuments to the dead of World War I. We don't see monuments to people who died in the flu pandemic in the same period. There was a sense that a death in the flu pandemic was a private matter, and it was also not a heroic matter. And I think that's why it didn't get as much recognition as it might have. People suffered in private. When you think about it, there were marriages that were blighted. There were children that were orphaned. There were people who lost brothers or sisters. All of these scarred people, but they didn't have a public outlet for it. And I think that's terribly sad. If you want to look at it in a possibly more optimistic way, my son asked me this question. He said, Dad, we've heard of the Roaring Twenties. Is it possible that the Twenties roared because people were so tired of being suffering under the flu pandemic that they wanted to just let it rip and make music and make art and have a good time? And I said, you know, I hope that's true, (laughs) because if it is true, we really have something to look forward to. Think of all the great art in New York City. Think of the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. Think of all the jazz. If we have something like that on the other side of this, I think that will be a really great thing. And I think there will be. Uh, I'm of the belief that there will be. Um, we're almost out of time, Rob. Um, but, you know, we have done a, a different kind of a job in memorializing people who have died. Um, is there a particular obituary that, that you have that you think would be really poignant that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, the, the news organization, The City, has been working with the Columbia Journalism School and the CUNY Journalism School on a project called Missing Them, where they are trying to provide an obituary for every New Yorker who died during the pandemic. And I, I was just going over them today and, and thinking about them. Um, Idris Bay, 60, from Brooklyn, an emergency medical technician. He survived 9-11, went on to work as an EMS training official. He died of the pandemic. Sharon Bascom of Queens, 61, born in Guyana, an educator who taught in Brooklyn for 20 years, taught kindergarten, taught math was a substitute teacher. She died. Ernesto Hernandez, 57, from Brooklyn, a bus driver for 15 years, checked into Maimonides Medical Center, died the next day. He was a father of two. Those are three of the just thousands of New Yorkers who passed. And I think it is important to note their passing and note that so many of them were people whose jobs required them to go out and interact with the public, to drive buses, to drive trains, to teach kids, to deliver groceries. Those are the essential workers. And I think that they suffered disproportionately and we should always take very seriously why they died, how they died, and what we need to do to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. Well, thank you for your time on this on this segment of the show, and thank you for the great work that you and your colleagues are doing with the COVID NYC documentary project. And it's it's we should not lose sight of the people that we have lost, including the people who have done so much to help keep our city together. And um, on a positive note, we're actually going to be talking about some of those services that being provided to essential workers. My first guest on this show about New York's response to COVID has been Dr. Robert Steiner. Rob is the Manhattan Borough historian and author of some great books, including Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights and the Promise of New York. And all the nations under heaven, immigrants, migrants, and the making of New York. Rob, thanks for being a guest on the show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. 
We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak about one of these modern day settlement houses. Uh, Not exactly, but similar to it. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. 
Our second guest on this special program about New York's response to COVID is Victoria Nizniansky. Victoria is the Chief Development and Social Services Officer at the YMYWHA of Washington Heights and Inwood. She's a Jewish refugee from Ukraine when it was part of the former Soviet Union. She's devoted her clinical career to the field of trauma and immigration, and among her accolades was recognition by the U.S. State Department for her outstanding contributions in the U.S. for her work for human rights and women's empowerment. Victoria has developed and oversees social services for vulnerable community residents, children with special needs, early childhood, social work education, and supervision at the Y. Most notably, she conceived and oversaw the project Sosua, Dared Against It, Dance Together, which brought the Dominican and Jewish youth of the Washington Heights and Inwood community together in a musical production about the Holocaust. This year, Victoria oversaw the agency's critical response to COVID-19 for the crisis-ravaged community, including vulnerable seniors, providing mental health support, cash assistance, meals, and emergency child care. Victoria Nesniansky, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're from Ukraine. When did you and your family immigrate to the United States? And I almost want to say when you left, was it still the Ukraine or just Ukraine? No, at that time it was the Soviet Union, the evil empire, the evil empire. So, yes, I'm from Ukraine, from Odessa. It's a beautiful city by the sea, by the Black Sea, one of the most beautiful places on Earth. So, as you can see, I still miss it. Um, I immigrated in 1989. Oh, that was still when uh, it was still the Soviet Union. That's (laughs) right. Uh, my family, part of my family actually was also from Ukraine. They were from Tolchin. And my grandmother told me that they lived in Odessa a short time before they came to the United States. Um, was there something in particular that had you come to New York? I know a lot of uh, people who emigrated from the former Soviet Union came to New York. Was there something particularly about New York that had you decide to come here? New York was the city of dreams and New York was the, the place to be. It was the hope, it was the inspiration, aspiration, joy, and anything you could hope for. And uh, if you didn't have any other relatives in the other parts of the country, most of the Jewish refugees, uh, New York was very uh, welcoming and uh, could absorb a lot of Jewish immigrants. Another thing about my background is I grew up in Manhattan Beach, very close to Brighton Beach. So uh, uh, Russian immigrants were part of my upbringing. Victoria, you have a master's degree in social work from NYU. What had you decide that you would make working with others in a social work capacity the focus of your career? I guess um, during my immigration, when the whole Jewish uh, journey started with uh, Austria and then Italy, uh, I saw how many immigrants uh, become absolutely broken and uh, getting destroyed with trauma of immigration. And I couldn't believe what happened in front of my eyes. The families would be separated. Uh, Mental illness will just come in unexpectedly and uh, people will experience severe trauma. So very few people knew the language. And so because I knew English, I was able to quickly serve as a translator and bring a lot of those families actually to get help. And that was exhausting and very rewarding. So when I arrived to this country, I knew that that's something that I would do. Wow. I would devote my career to serving immigrants. 
That's wonderful. Um, and you know, Rob talked about settlement houses, and we've talked about them in prior programs. I can't help but think now that social workers are the modern-day equivalent of the people who worked at and lived in settlement houses more than a century ago, you know, really committed to helping others, um, especially in immigrant communities, and getting settled and uh, having having uh, getting a springboard to having a much better life. Um, which brings us to the why, uh, the YMYWHA of Washington Heights and Inwood. What year was it established? 1917, very close to the Spanish flu, as Rob was talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was that old. Wow, it's more than 100 years old. Um, uh, and if I uh, ask Rob, he could... 103 years old. Um, and when did, you, when did you start working at the Y? Um, I started working at the Y in 2009, quite a long time ago. What drew you to the, excuse me, (laughs) what drew you to the organization? Well, one of the things that the Y is famous for, for its 103 years, is the history of those immigrants that I'm so passionate about. Um, as a place for refugees who escaped the war, first the World War One, and then World War Two, and then totalitarian regime, anti-Semitism, uh, torture, and then just in general to serve for a search for better life. The why was there to serve those in those immigrants and those communities. So first they were the Russians, and then the German, and then back the Russians, and then the whole Eastern European, then the Dominicans. And the whole diversity and focus on serving immigrants and helping them to resettle and have better life attracted me in displacement. Well, one interesting thing about the community in Washington Heights is there are a lot of Holocaust survivors who who settled in Washington Heights, but there were also a lot of German Jewish refugees who managed to get out before the war and they settled in in Washington Heights. Um, Before the pandemic, what were some of the programs that the Y provided to the community? The Y has been a vibrant, vibrant, beautiful community center serving everybody who came our, our, our way. So one of the, you mentioned Holocaust survivors. We have programs for the Holocaust survivors. At some point, the Y um, spoke only, spoke the Y staff spoke only German because that's where the German Jews uh, resettled and they came to the Y for programs. And then when the Russians came, the Russian staff came on board to serve and and help the immigrants to resettle. And then when the Dominicans came, that's the Spanish-speaking staff. So all along, the Y has incredible, has served the community with fast, reliable, professional services, early childhood, uh, Center for Adults Living Wells. We started serving seniors in 1970s, actually, earlier than any other resettlement or community centers. Uh, we serve the teens. We were in different uh, partnering schools. We partnered with the community. Uh, we opened up a nursery school, um, workforce development. Again, tons of programs, Jewish programming, innovative um, programs for children with special needs, uh, different social services program. It was a very vibrant center. But what was most important for the seniors, especially, this was the place where they could come and have a beautiful dinner, socialize, dance, participate in computer classes, learn, get stimulated, read books together, and again, dance together. Well, I... I 
Before we talk about the services that the Y um, has been heralding in, in, the, in the pandemic, I do want to ask you about one of the projects that you worked on before the pandemic, which was Sosua. Sosua was the musical production about the Holocaust that just didn't include people, uh, uh, survivors and, and people descended from survivors, but also young people from the Dominican community. Um, what was your inspiration for putting together that project? When I started working at the Y, I saw how the community, how all immigrants are actually similar, how the Jews who came here to escape Hitler, how the Russians who came here to escape anti-Semitism and Stalin, how the Dominicans who came here to escape Tajir. At that time, all of those immigrants were going through very, very similar stages. And uh, the community of Washington Heights, where Jews and Dominicans live side by side, but very rarely interact was of special interest. Uh, so the very well-known history or very little-known history of how in 1938, the Dominican Republic happened to be the only country that accepted the Jews. Very few people know about it, but now more and more. And the reason he accepted the Jews was because the Jews were white, and his idea was to bring the Jews to the island of Sasua and mix them with the Dominicans and whiten the island. But meanwhile, by doing that, he would save hundreds of thousands of Jews from the Holocaust. And by doing that, he would also whiten his own reputation because just recently, right before that, he was murdering Haitians for being black. So history is quite complicated. So I yes. felt that by bringing the history of Holocaust and it will allow us to bring the community together and for the Jewish community to express gratitude for being saved. I want to tell our listeners that the program received international and national awards and recognition for its global impact on youth and peace, a really important project. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Victoria Nesniansky, who is the Chief Development and Social Services Officer at the YMYWHA of Washington Heights and Inwood. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. 
Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York and our special episode about New York's and New Yorkers' responses to the pandemic. My second guest on the show is Victoria Nezniansky. She is the Chief Development and Social Services Officer at the YMYWHA of Washington Heights and Inwood. Uh, Victoria, what kind, I mean, you do such great work, um, and the Y does such great work. What kinds of challenges did the pandemic create for you as a local community organization? Oh. It's hard to start naming the challenges. Overnight, people lost their health, people lost their lives, people lost their income, and people uh, lost their meals. A lot of seniors became isolated and stuck in their homes, afraid to get out. A lot of uh, undocumented uh, cash workers who relied on cash economy selling mango in the street overnight became jobless and could not support their families. Uh, We had families whose uh, children became so sick and then the parents had to quit working and attend to their children. And then there were essential workers and children of the first responders. So we, it was so hard to uh, not to respond. So the wife very, very quickly basically got up and responded with this incredible, incredible response, strong response to the pandemic in all different populations. For the seniors, we were able to get the funding to from, from our donors to pay local restaurants and, and delivery workers. We kept them um, working. So why had, even before the pandemic, you had a robust uh, program to provide meals to older Correct. adults in the community? Correct. So the people came to us for meals. All of a sudden, they couldn't even come for a grab and go. The city did not allow us to cook or to provide meals. So we reached out to local restaurants. We paid them per meal and gave them a list of most vulnerable seniors to deliver those meals. And then we fundraised more and continued doing it. Our list grew and grew and grew. And in the midst of the pandemic, we served 300 seniors with hot, incredible meals from local restaurants both from the local Dominican place and the kosher, glad kosher place in Riverdale to really support our Holocaust survivors and the ones who couldn't just eat uh, Dominican food. But everybody was fed. It was a remarkable initiative. And I'd like to ask you about not just about the the older people who live in Washington Heights, which was an important service that you that you provided, but the the services that you provided to multi generational families families in uh, in need as a result of lost income. Uh, how has the Y been responding to help to help those families? So, as you already mentioned, uh, Rob, as well, this pandemic unearthed the deep poverty faced by many households in our neighborhood and the challenges of cash workers and those who lost their job to COVID. 
So a lot of people could not afford basic necessities. So the community counted at us and we determined how to help. We were able to get almost half a million dollars to give out to those families in need and to those individuals who came to the Y. The word of mouth went through the neighborhood and about 800, 900 people got in line for the Y asking for, for that support. We didn't ask for any documentation except for one piece of ID. It doesn't matter from the Dominican Republic, from somewhere else. So we know we're not duplicated our services and families got cash relief from us. And in many families, we helped rental with rent. We helped with winter clothing when the winter really hit hard because family could not afford to just borrow clothes from each other because of COVID. And we had to buy brand new winter coats and boots for families. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, I want to ask you about your funding in a minute, but but I want to ask you about one other thing that I think is an amazing service. Um, and by providing it, you've uh, not just been supporting the families that are part of your communities, but also many New Yorkers uh, because of the essential roles that they play, the essential workers. That's through the Regional Enrichment Center. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So uh, the city trusted us. Again, that's why uh, you can ask us about a funding, how diverse we are. We're having private funding and city funding. And city trusted us with a way to um, request if we could get that, uh, accept the funding to open up the regional center. It's called ECC, Emergency Child Care Center. Our community was community of color, deeply affected by COVID. The essential workers had to go back to work and save our city and save our lives. Yes, we couldn't function without essential workers, without people uh, uh, providing us food, you know, uh, being uh, uh, emergency service workers, first responders. And also, don't forget, we live very close to the hospital. A lot of hospital workers who needed to be there to save lives. So we opened the doors to bring those children to be entertained, fed, educated, and supported emotionally very, very deeply because a lot of families were going through a deep trauma. Another great program that you have been providing has been career development, and it's been internships, but specifically for at-risk youth in the community and who might have been even more at risk as a result of the pandemic. Um, how did you start that program? Well, we've been, um, we've been very, very successful in engaging local youth and youth at risk. And before the pandemic, we had 800, 900 youth that we found fantastic internships and helped the youth to get income and to support their families and um, be excited about their new career. With COVID, it was impossible. When the city was deciding whether to continue the program or not, the Y quickly approached the, the funders. We partnered with uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital that with a youth hub, it's called Uptown Hub and the UJA Federation. And we provided 600 internships to the youth online paid where we taught about social justice, where to, to, we developed tools to confront racism and basically empowered youth to advance racial justice and equality in our city. Wow, during the pandemic, what was it like getting companies to participate? It was was it especially hard, or was it easier to do it? We were not allowed. We were not allowed to send youth to our existing companies as before. So, with majority of the programs happened online, and we had cohorts and cohorts with small groups where every youth would get individualized attention, and the results were remarkable. So, the company participated. 
and one of the youth uh, highlighted their her um, project that she designed. She designed a, 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 an app that could be helpful uh, to adjust the social justice. And some of the companies decided to sponsor her to go on to deepen that program and deepen that application. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you, Victoria, is how have you been getting additional funding for all this? I mean, the need has been great. Um, how have you been how have you been able to 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 raise funding for, for all this important work? Well, one of the things being uh, being working uh, under the umbrella of the UJA Federation of New York, United Jewish Appeal, we were very fortunate that their donors, by hearing the work that we do, responded in tremendous generosity. And also, with Manhattan Times published a small article about us reaching out to local restaurants, supporting local restaurants, the donations came from the community. We never had so much attention from everybody, from parents of our kids, from seniors, from the community, from parents of the children attending local schools. It was a really, really moving experience. The community appreciated everything what we've done to the less fortunate and supported us. And then the foundations responded, Robin Hood Foundation uh, responded also very, very strongly. And then we have individual donors who wanted to start supporting our Holocaust survivors with meals. That was also initiative of our private donors. If our listeners want to find out more about your programs and also to potentially support the Y, how can they do that? It will be very, very grateful. Every dollar raised during COVID is going to really enhance the community, impact the community in all ways. We have a website. You can please visit us on the website. It's www.ywashhts.org. Again, www.ywashhts.org. You can find me. My name again is Victoria Neznansky. Uh, and you can reach me at vneznansky at ywashhts.org. You can call our main number. You can find us on Google. Please stop by and visit us, whether virtually or later when it becomes safe, and become a supporter and a friend of the Y. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being on the show and your time. And more important, thank you for the for the great work that you do for the people of your community and the people of the city. Um, it's because of angels like you that uh, we have a better world. So thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm not the only angel. I have my staff and I have my board. I said I'm angels so like you. I didn't say you're the only one. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> angels, yes. Here to the angels of the New York City, mm-hmm. our beloved city. Well, thank you, Victoria. Um, Victoria Nesniansky has been our second guest. She is the Chief Development and Social Services Officer at the YMYWHA of Washington Heights and Inwood. Well, we've completed another journey this week on our special about New Yorkers' responses to COVID. Thanks for joining us. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our production assistant is Leah Coppola. 
And our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. www.talkradio.nyc now broadcasting 24 hours a day hey everybody it's tommy d the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic each week here on talkradio.nyc i host a program philanthropy and focus Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader the personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2 They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7 Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.